welcome to the weekly review with Roman. Today it's Friday. <sighs> it's September 20th, 2019. Thanks so much for tuning in. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. The chair is a little bit low. I'm going to raise it a bit. Start off with some music from our lovely record collection here. Oftentimes I create the playlist ahead of time. This week that did not happen. There's one song I will most likely play. Other than that, I thought I would check out the record collection here and share some music I had heard before. The first song was a, uh, a Russian protest song. I've already put the record away. It was interesting. And then I took out the Dave Brubeck Quartet record, uh, Time Out. So we'll be hearing some music from them today. As per usual, there will be news stories. I'll provide a trigger warning ahead of time. Also, I didn't meditate this morning, so... Oh. Ah. I will probably be sighing and or groaning at the news a little more than usual. And that's okay. So today is the big climate strike that's happening around the world. Hundreds of thousands. If not, I'm going to guess at least over a million people uh, are marching around the world and or showing up in ways around the world. There have already been reports of um, early reports in Berlin were over 80,000 people, 22,000 in Tasmania. <sighs> I am scrolling down the list to see. It's happening in, oh, there's a, I'm looking at footage now from Melbourne, Australia, and it's too many people to count. Just the streets are full. And then another update from Berlin, 100,000 people. And these are only the, the cities that I'm hearing about. There's another video of Geelong, Australia. Many, many, many people who are marching. And hopefully, we will get some calls in today. I also want to encourage folks, if you are at one of these climate strike protests, to please give us a call in at the studio and let us know what's happening. If there are any speakers there, please share your experience. Phone number is 415 and it's a it's a shame that it's we're at this level now where folks who have been denying science and climate change have brought us to this point where it's the youth who will be feeling the impacts the most who have to to lead and it's that thing too where it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum but if you're someone who drinks water and likes to breathe clean air um yeah maybe one should take this seriously. And when we do look at who is polluting the most, it is the U.S. military is the number one polluter in the world. We look at big corporations who, rather than change their practices, they just pay fines because they can afford to and continue to pollute. Think about fossil fuels, think about fracking, and a lot of the industries that cause harm, the auto industry. Oh, yep, there we go. I am groaning already institutions that cause a lot of harm and can pay their way out of it. And they're not the ones who are going to, well, they probably will feel the, the consequences of climate change. Although folks with a lot of capital will have perhaps, uh, more money to spend on try to help themselves. I also think about Nestle, which has always been a really super evil company, and that's my professional opinion. They supported the Vietnam War, among other things. They've used slave labor. They have stolen water, and they have sold that water. And the CEO from, not the current CEO, but from a while ago, said that he didn't think water was a, was a right. 
<sighs> so Nestle is pretty bad. And then also in terms of like the plastic bottles that they create. And someone had said recently, they don't sell water, they sell plastic. The earth has the water. However, these companies sell plastic that holds the water. Oh, goodness. There was also a story on NPR recently that uh, North America has lost 3 billion birds, scientists say. I was a little bit too sad to read this story, but I'll read it right now. I have been taking, uh, my friend Dana feeds birds and got me into also feeding birds. So I leave bird seed outside my window and it's really pleasant to be in the city where there's, I mean, there's some, there definitely, we have access to nature here. And also there is a lot of concrete and the older I've gotten, the more I really appreciate trees and plants and flowers and birds. And there's a, an audio clip. So perhaps I'll play the audio clip now. And this is again from uh, NPR and we'll be back uh, after this. And, uh, for some reason, oh, I know what it is. Ken Rosenberg is 65 years old, and he says over his lifetime, he's noticed a decline in migrating birds, like evening grosbeaks. When I was a kid, there were years when you could see 50 or 100 at your feeder, and now you're lucky in a big year to see 10. Rosenberg works at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. He knew that some bird populations, like bald eagles, have actually gone up over the last few decades. So he wondered how the total number of birds in the sky might be changing. Are there fewer birds than there were in 1970? Or are we seeing a shift and losing some of the rare specialized species and shifting towards more generalist, more common birds, species that are more adapted to humans? To find out, he and some colleagues gathered all the data they could on over 500 bird species. A lot of it came from bird surveys done each year by volunteers. They also use data from weather radar installations that can detect flocks of migrating birds. They crunched all the numbers and were stunned by the results. By our estimates, it's a 30% loss in the total number of breeding birds since 1970, less than 50 years. And that's 3 billion birds. 3 billion fewer birds. Rosenberg says most of that loss comes from bird families like sparrows, finches, warblers, and swallows. Things like meadowlarks, dark-eyed junco, horned lark, red-winged blackbird. And the main culprit is probably the loss of their natural habitat with increased urbanization and more agriculture. This massive bird accounting project is described in the journal Science. It's not exactly as precise as balancing your checkbook. Ted Simons is an ecologist with North Carolina State University. He says trying to count and track birds is a daunting task. We're certainly far from having the tools and having the resources to uh, have real high confidence in our estimates of these populations. Still, he thinks it's very likely that the total bird population has substantially declined. And others say the new estimate sounds about right like migratory bird researcher Kristen Ruig at Colorado State University. Overall, the conclusions weren't necessarily surprising. I mean, they were depressing, but not surprising. She says having this estimate is a way to wake people up to the problem. Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. Yikes. Oof. That sucks. And I feel like I could say that after most of the news stories that we read. However, 
again, got to share what's happening so we have an understanding. And I do recommend if folks are able, feed some birds outside your house or apartment, wherever you are, if you're able. Bird seed is fairly inexpensive and, um, yeah, helpful to feed birds. <sighs> got a few more news stories coming up. And I also wanted to share that, yes, we are broadcasting from Mutiny Radio. We're on San Francisco, and we are on Ohlone land, and I wanted to share some resources for some folks. If you'd like to read up more on the land we're on, you can go to conspireforchange.org forward slash resources forward slash decolonization. There is a reading list, including an interactive map, contemporary Ohlone history, uh, processes of decolonization, and... A few more resources so please do check that out if you're able and I also wanted to share the Shumi land tax which is mostly for the the East Bay but folks anywhere can donate and that's the Segura Tay Land Trust uh, or and or if you type in Shumi land tax and that's s-h-u-u-m-i land tax you'll be brought to the website and they have more information there so please do check out those resources huh okay on onward with the stories i'm going to just share a few links today didn't come as prepared as possible and i know there's that expression to fake it till you make it and i never quite liked it because i feel like so many folks have faked it and they're in positions of power and they're causing a lot of harm and that's not good on the other hand uh, life sometimes you can only plan so much so we'll see how these these segues go I'll present some news stories, some action items that folks can take to participate. And I feel like that's a, a hopeful thing is that there's everyone can show up in, in one way or another. Everyone has resources and a voice and a way to create the world that we want to live in. And yes, there are forces that are working against us. There are forces that have been around before any of us were born. And at the same time, when we come together, we can make real change. Wow. Um, that sounds hopeful. Oh, the first story I have, it's, it's not so much an action item, it's more of an, inf, an informative story. And it's also depressing. This is from Boing Boing. Guantanamo Bay is the most expensive prison on earth. It costs $13 million per year to house each of the 40 prisoners at Guantanamo Bay detention camp, according to the New York Times. The U.S. military stations 45 troops per prisoner there. What the fuck? Ah. An estimated annual cost of $540 million covers the 12-month period that ended last September 30th and does not include expenses that have remained classified, presumably including a continued CIA presence. But the figures show that running the range of facilities built up over the years has grown increasingly expensive, even as the number of prisoners has declined. Oh, goodness. Um, so they provide a link to the article in the New York Times, and you can also find this over at boingboing.net. And we've shared it on, our, on the page that we share news on, which is facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. Uh, prisons are a waste of money and cause a lot of unnecessary suffering. And just think about the amount of not just the cruelty that's involved, but the the resources 
and energy that goes into causing harm instead of helping people. It's disgusting. <sighs> if you would like to help folks who are incarcerated, there's many ways to do so. And one is a, a post that was created by No New Jails in New York City. And you can follow them on Twitter at No New Jails underscore NYC. Support trans women. We are raising money for incarcerated trans women. Together, let's load up their commissary books so they can access much needed resources that jails and prisons refuse to supply. So you can donate and share. And the link is bit.ly forward slash commissary, the number four trans women. And if you'd like to share that with folks as well and or take another look, you can, if you follow me on Twitter, I've retweeted it. My Twitter handle is at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. So yes, um, there are different ways that folks can show up. And I also wanted to share that another action item folks can take is to write folks who are incarcerated. Black and Pink is a great organization that specializes in contacting people or connecting people with LGBTQ folks who are incarcerated and providing support. And um, that's it's one way. If you go to their website, you can also search for folks. You can find pen pals. And there's a few different chapters around the country. And oftentimes they have letter writing days where you just show up and also can send postcards. So if you just like doing artwork, for instance, and want to send a nice message to someone who is incarcerated, you can just make some art for a little bit. And it's, it's one way of, uh, of reaching out to folks. So wanting to share that. And there's another link that I wanted to share. And this is from Salish C. Black Autonomists. And you can follow them on Twitter at Black dot, oh, excuse me, black, at, excuse me, at black underscore autonomy. And they have a guide to writing to prisoners. And uh, it's the same site that has a list of political prisoners, or you can just look up people in your local jail or prison and write letters to them. And this is at nycabc.wordpress.com. And I will share some more information from this site. So this is the NYC Anarchist Black Cross. <sighs> And underneath the title, Free All U.S. Held Political Prisoners and Prisoners of War. So this is the write a letter section. Writing a letter to a political prisoner or prisoner of war is a concrete way to support those imprisoned for their political struggles. A letter is a simple way to brighten someone's day in prison by creating human interaction and communication, something prisons attempt to destroy. Beyond that, writing keeps prisoners connected to the communities and movements of which they are a part allowing them to provide insights and stay up to date. Writing to prisoners is not charity, as we on the outside have as much to gain from these relationships as the prisoners. Knowing the importance of letter writing is crucial. Prisons are very lonely, isolating, and disconnected places. Any sort of bridge from the outside world is greatly appreciated. With that in mind, avoid feeling intimidated, especially about writing to someone you do not know. And, if possible, try to be a consistent pen pal. What to write? For many, the first line of the first letter is difficult to write. There is uncertainty and intimidation that come with it. Never fret, it's just a letter. For the first letter, it's best to offer an introduction. How you heard about the prisoner, a little about yourself. Tell stories, write about anything you are passionate about. Movement work and community work are great topics until you have a sense of the prisoner's interests outside of political organizing. And what we hear from prisoners time and time again is to include detail. Prison is so total 
that the details of life of, on the outside become distant memories. Smells, textures, sounds of the street all get grayed out behind bars. That's not to say that you should pen a stream of consciousness novel. For things you should and should not, remember when writing that folks read the guidelines. So the guidelines are, you cannot enclose glitter or write with glittery gel pens or puff paint pens. Some prisons do not allow cards or letters that include permanent marker, crayon, or colored pencils, and it is best to check with a prisoner beforehand. That said, it is usually best to write in standard pencil or non-gel pen in blue or black ink. You cannot include articles or anything else torn out of a newspaper or magazine. However, you can print that same article from the internet or photocopy it and write your letter on the other side. You cannot include Polaroid pictures, though these days that's not much of an issue, but you can include regular photographs. Some prisoners are limited to the number of photos they can have at any given time, so again, check with the prisoner before sending a stack of photos. If mailing more than a letter, clearly write the contents of the envelope package. Label it contents and include a full list. A couple of technical details. Make sure you include your return address inside the letter as well as on the envelope. It's common for prisoners to receive letters without the envelope. Make sure to paginate, paginate. Uh, number each page, such as one or three, uh, such as one of three, two of three, etc. This ensures that if pages of your letter don't make it to the prisoner, they will know it. Be careful about making promises and only commit to what you are certain you can do. This should go without saying, but it's not a good idea to make commitments to someone you don't have a relationship with. If you can't maintain a correspondence, let them know up front. Conversely, if you want to maintain an ongoing correspondence, let them know that as well. If you are writing to someone who is pre-trial, don't ask questions about their case. Discussing what a prisoner is alleged to have done can easily come back to haunt them during their trial or negotiations leading up to it. Don't valorize the person you are writing. Keep in mind that these are folks coming from the same movements and communities that you are. They aren't looking for adoration, but rather to maintain correspondence. Finally, do not write anything you wouldn't want Fox News, a cop, or a judge to see. Assume that intelligence and law enforcement agencies are reading your letter. On a related note, this advice goes for any snail mail, email, texting, messaging, or talking that takes place in known activist spaces or homes. This is not, a le this is not legal advice, just basic movement survival common sense. And to review, read Staying Safe. And then they have a list here of Staying Safe. Ooh, and... Sure, let's read this. Staying safe. You never have to, and it is never a good idea to talk to police, FBI, ICE, or any law enforcement agent or investigator. Other than providing your name and address to a police officer who is investigating a crime, you never have to talk. You will not outsmart them by talking or sound less suspicious by talking or make things easier for yourself by talking. Anything you say will be used against you and others. If they catch you in a lie or inconsistency, they can charge you with a separate crime. Say, I have nothing to say to you, or I need a lawyer present to continue this conversation. If they come to your home, workplace, or school, ask them for a card and tell them your attorney will be in contact with them. The FBI may, may threaten you with a grand jury subpoena for not talking. It doesn't matter because they, are, they were probably going to subpoena you anyway, and you weren't going to talk anyway. If you receive a grand jury subpoena, you should contact a lawyer immediately and let others in your community know. People can be held up to 18 months, potentially longer, for refusing to talk to grand juries. Even so, for our own survival, it is imperative that we take that risk and do not participate in grand juries as they are used to indict political prisoners and prisoners of war. 
In the federal legal system, the grand jury is used to decide whether someone should be charged, indicted, for a serious crime. The grand jury hears evidence presented by the prosecutor, the U.S. attorney. The grand jury uses subpoenas to gather this evidence. It can subpoena documents, physical evidence, and witnesses to testify. The special federal jur grand jury, created in 1970, can be used to investigate possible organized criminal activity rather than a specific crime. Currently, there is more than one active grand jury in New York City. There are also more than, more than likely informants and agent provocateurs infiltrating anarchist communities here. It is imperative that we continue our work as anarchists, including the support of political prisoners and prisoners of war, towards the abolition of the state, of capitalism, and of all oppression. It is also imperative that we do so in a way that is smart, strategic, and sustainable. So if you would like to um, share this and or read this, you can, again, go to nycabc.wordpress.com forward slash write dash a dash letter. They have a lot more resources and links on this page, too. And this looks like the was updated in this year of 2019. Okay. We've got on the topic of police and policing and state violence, there's more information about ICE. And Unicorn Riot, which is a, an independent news source, has uncovered a lot of information and they've posted a lot as well. You can follow them on Twitter um, at UR underscore Ninja. And they have a lot of, uh, they have a lot of research that they share. I'm going to play a, about a two minute video from them and then we'll be back. Even so, the U.S. Agriculture Department announced this week the creation of regional dairy innovation centers in Wisconsin, Vermont, and Tennessee. But it's unclear what the industry will look like by the time any innovative ideas make it to the milking parlor. And that was a different link. And this is now uh, Icebreaker Part 6, Ice HSI, Department of Homeland Security. And they have a release that features 40 pages, uh, official use only. It's the Special Response Team Handbook. ICE is now expanding its SRT paramilitary training program at Fort Benning, Georgia. This handbook directed ICE SRT planning and organization for 11 years. Gear and weapons for armed raids. Raid intelligence planning via databases, one now built by Palantir. And again, folks have been protesting at Palantir in Palo Alto. And follow Never Again Action if you'd like to get involved with that. MRAP Armored Vehicles and Helicopters, Firearms Training Protocols, and they have video footage. <sighs> so yes, this is from um, 
Hashtag Icebreaker, a series from Unicorn Riot, disclosing more than 20 years of secret federal law enforcement policies hidden by ICE and Homeland Security. So, oh, goodness. Um, so, I will read a little bit from the, the thread that this is attached to. Again, this is published through Unicorn Riot. You follow them at UR underscore Ninja. Last week, ICE's SRT program got increased attention when the agency posted a notice that it's ratcheting up its training program at the politically sensitive site of Fort Benning, Georgia, former School of the Americas SOA site, failing to redact that site info. Civil liberties expert, and you can follow them at at O-N-E-K-A-D-E, pointed out ICE training at Fort Benning is some real boomerang theory in action. For decades, the security state hosts a school for foreign services to teach how to violently quash left resistance. MRAP armored vehicles are the most visible component of ICE HSI special response teams, attracting attention for years from people concerned about domestic militarization. And they have a full story at unicornriot.ninja. ICE special response teams execute armed SWAT-style raids and use Homeland Security databases like TECS to research targets. TECS, now closely linked to controversial contractor Palantir, which has been protested multiple times this summer in hashtag no tech for ICE actions. Uh, Unicorn Riot's hashtag icebreaker6 report takes a close look at how federal paramilitary policing teams have vastly expanded since 2005 and how analysts have identified a steadily expanding pattern of armed raids for an increasing set of justifications. While some see paramilitary policing like ICE SRT teams as a response to crime and gang problems, others see a government in crisis moving towards a police state. Unicorn Riot has documented how FEMA trains local police in cavalry-style mobile field force operations doctrine for civil disturbances and crowd control, which has some overlap with ICE SRT planning doctrine. Your support, And so, yes, if you'd like to support Unicorn Riot, uh, they provide a link as well. If you go to unicornriot.ninja, you can donate to this organization. And someone else has posted a link um, how about Palantir, and which is Peter Thiel's data mining company, and how it's tracking U.S. citizens. And you can find that article at Bloomberg.com. And we'll share a little bit more information about that specific article so folks can find it if you are interested in reading up more about this. And this was written by Peter Waldman, Lizette Chapman, and Jordan Robertson, and it came out on April 19th, 2018. Shall we read more? Okay, why not? High above the Hudson River in downtown New Jersey, a former U.S. Secret Service agent named Peter Kavikia III ran special ops for J.P. Morgan Chase and, and co. And I'm also going to interrupt to remind folks that J.P. Morgan Chase uh, affiliated with the Nazis. Ugh. His insider threat group, most large financial institutions have one, have one used computer al algorithms to monitor the bank's employees ostensibly to protect against uh, perfidious traders and other miscreants. 
aided by as many as 120 forward-deployed engineers from the data mining company Palantir Technologies, Inc., which J.P. Morgan engaged in in 2009, Kavikia's group vacuumed up emails and browser histories, GPS locations from com company-issued smartphones, printer and download activity, and transcripts of digitally recorded phone conversations. Palantir's software aggregated, searched, and searched sorted and analyze these records, surfacing keywords and patterns of behavior that Kavikia's team had flagged for potential abuse of corporate assets. Palantir's algorithm, for example, alerted the insider threat team to uh, when an employee started badging into work later than usual, a sign of potential disgruntlement. That would trigger further scrutiny and possibly physical surveillance after hours by bank security personnel. Over time, however, Kavikia himself went rogue. Former J.P. Morgan colleagues described the environment as Wall Street meets Apocalypse Now, with Kavikia as Colonel, Colonel Kurtz ensconced upriver in his office suite eight floors above the rest of the bank's security team. People in the department were shocked that no one from the bank or Palantir set any real limits. They darkly joked that Kavikia was listening to their calls, reading their emails, and watching them come and go. Some planted fake information in their communications to see if Kavikia would mention it at meetings, which he did. It all ended when the bank's senior executives learned that they too were being watched, and what began as a promising marriage of masters of big data and global finance descended into a spying scandal. The misadventure, which has never been reported, also marked an ominous turn for Palantir, one of the most richly valued startups in Silicon Valley. An intelligence platform designed for the global war on terror was weaponized against ordinary Americans at home. Founded in 2004 by Peter Thiel and some, PayPal, some fellow PayPal alumni, Palantir cut its teeth working for the Pentagon and the CIA in Afghanistan and Iraq. The company's engineers and products don't do any spying themselves. They're more like a spy's brain, collecting and analyzing information that's fed in from the hands, eyes, nose, and ears. The software combs through disparate data sources, financial documents, airline reservations, cell phone records, social media postings, and searches for connections that human analysts might miss. It then presents the linkages in colorful, easy-to-interpret graphics that look like spiderwebs. U.S. spies and special forces loved it immediately. They deployed Palantir to synthesize and sort the blizzard of battlefield intelligence. It helped planners avoid roadside bombs, track insurgents for assassination, even hunt down Osama bin Laden. The military success led to federal contracts on the civilian side. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services uses Palantir to detect Medicare fraud. The FBI uses it in criminal probes. The Department of Homeland Security deploys it to screen air travelers and keep tabs on immigrants. I'm also going to interject the idea of Medicare fraud and this idea that folks many many folks do not have access to health care many folks are in medical debt and it's ridiculous that there's it's i'm just oh the money again it's going to it also reminds me of how bart is i think it's either bart and or the mta maybe it's both they're adding i think it's the mta i was reading about how they're adding uh cops to arrest folks who are uh, they assume to be fair jumping and the idea of criminalizing poor folks and the money that they're spending paying people to then punish others who don't have the money 
could very well just be spent to subsidize the costs of transportation. Why not offer discount fares for people who can't afford it? Or just create free transportation and use the money that would be going to pay cops to then go back to the transit agency. Oh, fuck. Taking a deep breath. And let's continue. Police and sheriff's departments in New York, New Orleans, Chicago, and Los Angeles have also used it, frequently ensnaring in the digital dragnet, people who aren't suspected of committing any crime. People and objects pop up on the Palantir's on the Palantir screen inside boxes connected to other boxes by radiating lines labeled with the relationship, colleague of, lives with, operator of, then cell phone number, owner of, certain vehicle, sibling of, even lover of. <sighs> if the authorities have a picture, the rest is easy. Tapping databases of driver's license and ID photos, law enforcement agencies can now identify more than half the population of U.S. adults. Holy fuck, that is scary. J.P. Morgan was effectively Palantir's R&D lab and test bed for a foray into the financial sector via a product called Metropolis. The two companies made an odd couple. Palantir's software engineers showed up at the bank on skateboards. Neckties and haircuts were too much to ask, but J.P. Morgan drew the line at t-shirts. The programmers had to agree to wear shirts with collars tucked in when possible. As Metropolis was installed and refined, J.P. Morgan made an, made an equity investment in Palantir and inducted the company into its hall of innovation, while its executives raved about Palantir in the press. The software turned data landfills into gold mines. Guy Tiarolo, I let me try that one again. Guy Tiarolo, Tiarolo, who was then J.P. Morgan's chief information officer, told Bloomberg Business Week in 2011. And they have a chart here. The founder of Palantir is extremely well-connected. Here's how his life might appear in the company's model. So there's Thiel, Thiel, excuse me, Thiel Capital, and that's connected to Michael Kratzios, who's an employee of the Trump White House. Yikes. Uh, and um, there's also Kevin Harrington, who's also an employee of the Trump White House, who's a former operator of Thiel Macro. There's Justin Michaelay, who's a, an employee of the Trump White House. And again, this is from 2018, so some of these relationships might be different now. However, this was what was reported last year. And so Justin Michaelay was a former operator of Palantir. There's Alexander Karp, who's an operator of Palantir, and I think one of the uh, head people now. I'm sure there's a position name, and I haven't. I've read it a number of times, and I just can't seem to remember because I'm so angry. Um, so, and Alexander Karp is a student of Jurgen Habermas, who's a colleague of Theodore Adorno. Um, one of the funders of Palantir is Mithril Capital. And so again, Peter Thiel is, I see, I'm scrolling down. It's a pretty large map, so I'll get to as much as, that, as I am able to. So Peter Thiel is an operator of Mithril Capital, which then funds Palantir. And also, of course, Peter Thiel is the operator of and founder of Palantir. He's also a colleague of Jeremy Stoppelman, who's a founder of Airbnb. Yikes. Don't do Airbnb. Um, and also an operator of Yelp. Yikes. Again. Oh. Oof. Okay. Oof. <laughs> um, Peter Thiel's also an operator of the Founders Fund. 
and which is the founder of SpaceX, excuse me, SpaceX. And we know that that's Elon Musk. And Elon Musk is a uh, former creator, op- excuse me, operator of PayPal and Peter Thiel's connected to PayPal. Um, let's look down here. Palantir moving down. It's a founder of Facebook. And I myself, of course, I'm connect. You know, it's how can so many big companies youtube is on this list linkedin so many of us are connected to some of these organizations these companies there's Greylock partners which is a funder of facebook and that's also a funder of linkedin connected to sequoia which is a funder of youtube and youtube's connected to steve chen who is a former operator of youtube uh there's a roloff Botha, who's an operator of Sequoia. There's the 1517 fund. Peter Thiel is a funder of, as well as a New Zealand, excuse me, New Zealand estate. Peter Thiel is also a colleague of Reed Hoffman, who is a former operator of LinkedIn and a funder of Facebook. So yikes. Oh, and also, of course, Tesla is there too, because Elon Musk is here. So they provide just a link of how everything is connected. And the chart was done by Dorothy Grambell. Excuse me, Dorothy Gambrell. Kavikia was in charge of forensic investigations at the bank. Through Palantir, he gained administrative access to a full range of corporate security databases that had previously required separate authorizations and a specific business justification to use. He had unprecedented access to everything all at once, all the time, on one analytic platform. He was a one-man national security agency surrounded by the Palantir engineers, each one costing the bank as much as $3,000 a day. Senior investigators stumbled onto the full extent of the spying by accident. In May 2013, the bank's leadership ordered an eternal probe into who had leaked a document to the New York Times about a federal investigation of J.P. Morgan for possibly manipulating U.S. electricity markets. Evidence indicated the leaker could have been Frank Bisling... I'm having a tough time with the names, and which is not necessarily rare for me. Uh, Biz... Bizing, Bizanio. Biz... Bizanio? Okay. Who recently resigned as J.P. Morgan's co-chief operating officer to become CEO of First Data Corp, the big payments processor. Cav- Kavikia had used Metropolis to gain access to emails about the leak investigation, some written by top executives, and the bank believed he shared the contents of those emails and other communications with Bassanio after Bassanio had left the bank. Inside J.P. Morgan, Bassanio was considered Kavikia's patron, a senior executive who protected and promoted him. And the article goes on for a few more paragraphs. Um, actually, quite a number of more paragraphs. It's quite a long article. So I am going to quit while I am able to. And there's a little, just a paragraph or a sentence I'll read in the middle here. As shown in the privacy breaches at Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, the pressure to monetize data at tech companies is ceaseless. So there's a lot more information, including folks suing Palantir in federal court, alleging fraud and much more. So again, you can find this article at Bloomberg.com. I say it's time for a music break. Wow. Okay. So here's some more Dave Rubick, and we'll be back in a bit.
Welcome back to the weekly review. Ah, that was a nice interlude. So how about some more news stories? Ah, all right. Ooh, okay. So here's something that's helpful. Uh, California governor signs law protecting gig economy workers. And this, reading this from NPR again. And this came out on September 18th, 2019, and was written by Richard Gonzalez. California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a sweeping new labor law Wednesday, extending wage and benefit protections to about a million workers and aimed primarily at drivers contracted by ride-hailing companies such as Uber and Lyft. I will interject and just say, imagine a world where hitchhiking was, I know hitchhiking does still exist in many places, and also folks used to do that a lot more often here in the u.s before it got a bad rap and that's and the, the idea that some folks are like oh but it could be scary to hitchhike and you don't know who your driver is going to be you don't know who your passenger is going to be and here we have um drivers attacking passengers for at uber and lyft you have passengers being attacked by drivers and vice versa that's all happening and then folks are still paying and capitalists are making a shit ton of money and buying multi-million dollar houses in in LA for at least one of the Uber people did and workers have to live in their cars and it's putting taxi drivers out of business anyway. And it's also, it's it's a, the public transportation, at least in the Bay area is taking a hit. So, Oh yeah. Let me, so yeah, it's a, it's a good thing that uh, workers are being compensated and also, just imagine a world where, oh, hey, I need to go from point A to point B. Someone's already driving that way. I'll hitchhike. And also, I guess I'm really going to go into it now, just the idea that there it's added the these ride-sharing ride companies, have like, they've also added traffic. It's also bad for the environment because people are taking less public transit. And also, if hitchhiking were more of a thing that would just help out a lot of people because folks are already driving a certain way instead of people who are, I'm going to get in my car just so I can make extra money. I really wish there was imagining a world where public transportation was more invested in and folks wouldn't necessarily need a car to, to get around. Okay. So let's continue with this article. Newsom had argued that, 
I, I was just ranting so much that the, the screen already started going to sleep. Okay. Newsom had argued that when workers are misclassified as independent contractors rather than employees, they lose basic benefits such as minimum wage, paid sick days, and health insurance. The hollowing out of our middle class has been 40 years in the making, and the need to create lasting economic security for our workforce demands action, Newsom said in his signing statement. Today, we are disrupting the status quo and taking a bold step forward to rebuild our middle class and reshape the future of workers as we know it. Democratic Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez of San Diego, author of AB5, said in a statement, as one of the strongest economies in the world, California is now setting the global standard for worker protections for other states and countries to follow. Both labor groups and the ride-hailing companies such as Uber anticipate national implications for the signing of AB5. The bill covers workers in a variety of industries, including healthcare, trucking, and media. Some industries such as real estate, commercial fishing, and cosmetology services carved out exemptions from the law. But the app-based tech companies, primarily Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, were not granted exceptions, and Uber says it does not plan to reclassify their drivers as employees after the bill goes into effect on January 1st, 2020. The three companies that rely on contracting drivers say they will spend $90 million on a 2020 ballot measure to regulate the gig economy workers. Motherfuckers. Ah! I didn't mean to scream into the mic. It's just like, you have the fucking money. They've got $90 million, and they're going to use it to... They're going to use it to regulate the regulate workers instead of, I don't know, using that for, I don't know, healthcare or wage increases for their workers or sick pay. Again, it's, they have the money. It's just, they're using it to keep it to themselves. Okay. Um, there's a couple more paragraphs, but I'm going to just end there. Oh, goodness. Oh, I'm going to take a deep breath. I feel like it's almost already time for some more jazz just because I get so angry when <sighs> reading about what's what's happening. There's an article. I'm going to read the headlines here for a couple more articles. There's one from Vice that came out recently. And again, you can find this. Uh, if you go to, again, I know I recognize Facebook is evil and that's what we have at the moment to share information and i'm also totally willing and able and if folks have other information other social networking sites they'd like to share please do get in touch you can find me uh email me at djrimer at gmail.com send me information that way from vice.com hundreds of migrant kids in government shelters are put on psychotropic drugs says a watchdog report Ugh. Um, this is a, some of a, well, next positive story, at least, uh, from eastbaytimes.com. Uh, there are strength in numbers. Concord renters form Contra Costa's first citywide tenant, tenants union. So that's something positive. Also positive. Ayanna Presley has filed impeachment resolution against Brett Kavanaugh. And that article is from thegrio.com. Um, another to do thing, a lot of folks have been saying for quite a while to, if you're able to grow your own food, especially if this police state does continue on as it is and uh, with climate change, et cetera, et cetera, if we're able to provide for ourselves in our communities as kind of what was here before colonization, uh, one should be able to do that. And there is a link at good homes, 
home, excuse me, goodhomedesign.com. Learn how to create your own one acre self-sustaining homestead. I know many folks don't, I myself do not have access to this. However, if you have access to land, by all means, grow your own food, share with the community, etc. Another positive news story from HuffPost.com, Merriam-Webster adds use of they as gender non-binary pronoun to dictionary. As someone who I myself use they, them pronouns, grateful that it's getting more and more recognition. So that is positive. Bad story Ugh, from, looks like K, yes, KGW.com. Two transgender people attacked in Portland. Third reported recent instance in Oregon. And we also know that there have been over a dozen of deaths of trans women this year so far. And these are just the reported ones. And so wanting to name that and just... <sighs> call in people um, asking for cis folks to really do that if you hear people making transphobic jokes please call them in and same with with white folks if you hear other folks white folks making racist comments to call people in as well and it's it's up to the communities who are responsible for the violence to call in each other to stop it Okay, here's a somewhat of a positive story. It is, though, from businessinsider.com. Over 1,200 students at 17 universities, including Stanford, have pledged not to take jobs at Palantir unless it stops working with ICE. So that's good. Apply pressure to Palantir to stop working with ICE. There's a uh, tweet I wanted to share from Bree Newsom-Bass. Definitely, please do follow Bree on Twitter. You can follow her at, at B-R-E-E-N-E-W-S-O-M-E. -E -E. I feel like of all the... I know it's spelled differently than Gavin Newsom. However, that's the Newsom whom I appreciate far more. Uh, the wealthy and powerful are engaging in wide-scale crimes from human sex trafficking to rigging college admissions to fleecing taxpayers, while most of the court system's focus is on policing and jailing people for the crime of being poor. I wanted to share that. Um, from kdvr.com, protests planned outside home of Aurora Ice Detention Center Warden. You could find that article, again, kdvr, and we shared it on the Weekly Review webpage on September 14th. From newsweek.com, I know, pretty mainstream. However, they, they're even there sharing, more kids have died in ice custody than from vaping. Uh, which is a former Republican Party chairman says is because 45 has planned to make vaping illegal. Story from austincurbed.com. Austin groups 3D print tiny homes to help end homelessness. And I think that will bring me to another story I wanted to share. This was, I think, from a few years ago. I now have it pinned on my Twitter. Um, an estimated 100,000 homes are sitting empty in the San Francisco metro area. And this was from sfgate.com. And it makes me so fucking angry because there are thousands of folks who are unhoused here in San Francisco, over 70% of whom were previously housed here. Many folks work. And regardless of whether or not, I mean, everyone should have housing. We have more than enough resources here. However, people are criminalized. There are the sweeps that have been happening for years. People's possessions are taken. Their tents, their medications, people's walkers are taken, people's ashes of loved ones. I mean, how cruel can you fucking get? And that's what's happening here. 
And it's happening in a lot of other cities as well. So when folks start saying, uh, you know, blaming folks for being poor, it's like, well, how about we put them in any of the empty houses that are here? It's really fucking simple. Give people shelter. And if you, even if you're not looking at it from a moral standpoint, if you're only looking at it from an economic standpoint, it's still cheaper to give people housing than to pay cops and pay the Department of Home of Public Works to go in and have sweeps and or to incarcerate people, oh, or to people tickets for loitering or whatnot, or give them tickets for uh, not paying the fare at BART, for instance. Uh So again, this is for the uh, San Francisco metro area, but we also know that there are plenty of homeless camps out in Oakland as well, and the more people who are being evicted, the more widespread that is. So if you'd like to check out the article, please go to SFGate, and this was uh, posted on March 17th, 2019, and it's written by Amy Graff. So please do check that out, and also share that with folks who want to blame folks are being poor when really it's the folks who are privatizing housing and landlords who are cause, you know, who are charging obscene amounts and people who have empty properties where people could be living right now. It's really doable to end this crisis. All right. I'm going to flip the record over and I do love records and it's great to be able to, uh, to play records here at the station. I'm going to play the side two of timeout. There's something so nice about uh, just the tactile of putting a record on. And, and I grew up in the time of cassette tapes and CDs and also records. And then when everything went digital, or m many things did, many of us got rid of our CD collections and whatnot. And there's something just so nice about the sound and the feel of a record. So I'm going to play side two of this. And we'll be back in a bit. Stay tuned. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. Thank you. 
welcome back to the weekly review what a beautiful record that was time out by the dave brubeck quartet we have a few more news stories here before we wrap up the show uh, this was a story i wanted to get to last week and didn't get a chance to and this is from color lines bahamians denied entry to us during post-hurricane dorian evacuation there is confusion and finger pointing about why more than 100 people were not allowed to travel to florida meanwhile 45 doubles down on rhetoric to keep out quote-unquote very bad people even though he himself is a very bad person this is written by ayana bird and it came out on september 10th 2019 in the aftermath of hurricane dorian the most powerful storm to ever hit the bahamas thousands of people have been evacuated from the areas most affected Many have gone to Nassau, and more than 1,000 to 500 have come to the nearby United States, bypassing the visa process because they are survivors of a natural disaster. Oh. But on Sunday, September 8th, on a ferry headed from Freeport, Bahamas to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, a crew member announced, please, all passengers that don't have a U.S. visa, please proceed to disembark. As a result, 119 people left the ferry, despite having paid for tickets under the impression that they would be allowed to travel to Florida. At the last minute like this, it's kind of disappointing. It's hurtful because I'm watching my daughter cry. But it is what it is. Renard Oliver, who was holding his infant daughter, told Brian Enton, a reporter for Miami television station WSVN. Enton, who was aboard the... Valeria Ferry posted a video of the announcement on Twitter that quickly went viral. And uh, let's see here. Thank you coming to the USA. You all have problems. So please, all passengers that don't have US visa, please proceed to disembark. And you can find that um, on Twitter at Brian, B-R-I-A-N-E-N-T-I-N, who posted the video on September 8th, 2019 at 5.02 p.m. By the next day, September 9th, it was clear that there were unanswered questions and finger-pointing around why the passengers weren't allowed to evacuate. Per the Washington Post, the incident, which U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, blamed on the ferry operator, comes amid bipartisan calls to waive all visa requirements for Bahamas survivors. At a news conference Monday, acting CBP commissioner Mark Morgan said there was confusion around the issue, but that the agency's policy hadn't changed. This is a humanitarian mission, Morgan said. If your life is in jeopardy and you're in the Bahamas, you're going to be allowed to come to the United States, whether you have travel documents or not. Valeria Caribbean released a statement apologizing for the hardship and inconvenience. That's in quotation marks. It caused the 119 passengers, saying, We boarded these passengers with the understanding that they could travel to the United States without visas, only to later, having been advised that in order to travel to Fort Lauderdale, they required prior in-person authorization from the immigration authorities in Nassau. A CBP spokesperson reportedly told WSVN that the change in requirements was because Valeria did not properly coordinate the evacuation efforts with the U.S. Embassy, the Bahamian government, and the U.S. Agency for International Development. Although his administration stressed that people from the island would be able to enter the U.S., President Fuckface, excuse me, that's, those are my words, not the words, in the article, was less welcoming. We have to be, am I even going to fucking quote his bullshit? Fucking gross. Moving on to the next paragraph. Uh, Twitter users called him out for the rhetoric. And 
one person, uh, Jamil Hill at J-E-M-E-L-E-H-I-L-L says he needs to stop insulting our intelligence and just say what he wants to say. It's because they're black. And so that O'Brien also commented because they're black, right? Dorian made landfall as Category 5 storm in the Bahamas on September 1st, targeting Abaco and Grand Bahama Islands. The official count of the dead is 50, and again, this article was posted a week ago, but it is expected to rise as rescue efforts continue. Hundreds are missing. About 70,000 have lost their homes, and Abaco is uninhabitable, according to CNN. So again, you can find this article at colorlines.com. And it was written by Ayanna Bird, and it came out on September 10th, 2019. Also moving along to what has been happening in Greece, um, there is a a tweet from at M-A-R-I-A-M-J-X-D-E. They evicted two refugee squats this morning in... Akronan, a squat made for the purpose of housing pregnant women and children, and another squat which housed around 300 people, mostly families and many children. The trauma does not stop for these people. <sighs> uh, They're being handed deportation documents in Greek and being told to sign them without actually understanding what is going on. There needs to be a show of support and someone with a legal badge that can go in and tell people not to sign the papers. This person has contacted who they can inside the detention center, but if anyone can go in, it would be ideal. This person has spent ex- extensive time in these two squats and have seen how they operate. They are the squats least dependent on outside help. The residents operate everything themselves. It's refugee run, and they truly were able to break the dependency cycle. They lived with autonomy. You'll see media outlets and the right justify these horrifying raids with language, which suggests that living in camps will be better. It won't. The camps are so rife with violence, gangs, and corruption that a container you're assigned by the camp officials doesn't actually go to you until you pay 800 euros to the gangs and the camps using the containers as brothels. Using the camps as brothels, people are threatened each day for speaking their mind or doing what they want. Freedom is not just restricted by officials, police, and the army. It's restricted from within. The squats, especially, and our Akronon 22 and the second school have found a way to live together and work together in a way that benefits all living in the building. It's a community, and there have been problems in the past, but who has, but who has solved them? The people living in the squats. The government's goals is not to provide housing or support or better lives for refugees. It's to remove them from the public eye. It's to isolate them and break the solidarity formed between locals and migrants, out of sight, out of mind. They do this by attacking self-organized structures. This helps them threaten anyone who dares to not rely on the oppressive system that has been built from for the rich and the powerful. We need to fight back, and we need to protect the squats in a radical way. It's not enough to hold protests. We need to fight. So again, this is a Twitter thread that was posted on September 19th um, by at a, excuse me, at M-A-R-I-A-M-J-X-D-E. And again, sending solidarity to folks in Greece as well as around the world where this is a, a common, it's a common occurrence where folks who autonomously learn how to collaborate and live together and sustain one another are targeted by the state. And it reminds me a lot of the homeless encampments here in the Bay Area that have been targeted by cops, by DPW, 
folks who have created community and found a way to live together are then targeted. <sighs> There's also whistleblower complaints against 45 as well, along with many other complaints across the board. Also wanted to share that GM workers are striking, so sending lots of love and solidarity to these folks who are striking. And so I wanted to share this audio clip from Democracy Now! And uh, this is, let's see when this was shared. Um, there's not a date that I see. Um, let's see, hold on. Let's see here. It was shared by Democracy Now! on YouTube. I know YouTube has a lot of fucking problems. Um, but if you do want to see the video and or hear it again, if you type in, if you follow Democracy Now! Um, on YouTube, this was called Something is Really Broken, Why GM Auto Workers Are Striking. Back in 2009, during the bankruptcy, GM told the United Auto Workers, uh, we're definitely going to close these plants, and these other plants will agree to open, but only if we get a two-tier wage system. So the top tier paid $29 an hour. They set up a bottom tier that ran from, like, $17 up to about 25 And then they've—now there's this third tier, you know, temps, and the temps make $15 an hour, and some of the temps have been there three and five years. So. Uh, with all this concern about the increased precariousness of the economy and increased instability in jobs, you know, one of the focuses of the union of the strikers is we got to get rid of this, this, you know, this, these temp. I mean, we, we have to change these temp workers to make them permanent. It's unfair they're making just $15 an hour. They work side by side with people who make twice as much, and and there's side a feeling side by side often doing the same job. Yeah, right? doing yes, doing the same job, and and um, it's part of the UAW's saying, you know. We've been good to you, GM. We want you to be fair and good to us. Plus, the workers in the second tier uh, want the uh, gap closed with the top tier. They want to be moved up to $29, $31 very, very quickly. This is Ted Crum, head of the UAW's bargaining committee, speaking at a news conference Sunday night. I want to be clear about something. This strike is about us. It is about standing up for fair wages for affordable quality health care, for our share of profits, and for our job security. We are standing with our brothers and sisters who are, on or who are temporary employees and in-progression employees who do the same work we do for less pay. We are united. We are, we, we are strong. We are ready. We don't take this lightly. But General Motors needs to understand that we stood up for GM when they needed us. These are profitable times. We work hard to make this company profitable, and we deserve a fair contract because we have, we've helped make this company what it is. We're standing up for us. We make, we make no mistake, the strike is about the members in Texas, Missouri, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, and throughout the great nation. We're fighting for the future of the middle class, and we, we want a fair and equitable contract. Thank you. So that's Ted Crum, head of the UAW's bargaining committee, speaking at a news conference as they were going out on strike. If you could respond to what he says, and also this latest move by GM not to pay the health care of workers. You retweeted today Sarah Nelson, the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, um, uh, CWA, tweeting about GM's decision to pull health care for all benefits. She said, a note to anyone who wants to use union members as a wedge to oppose Medicare for all. You 
UAW has one of the best plans in the country, but management can still use it to hold workers hostage. M4A puts power back in our hands, meaning Medicare for all. So I wrote this book explaining that, you know, unions did an amazing job, you know, lifting workers, you know, last century, creating the middle class, creating the 40-hour week, making mines and, and factories much safer. But over the past 20, 30 years, unions and worker power in the United States have gotten much, much weaker. I explain that's because, you know, corporations have really played super hardball to weaken unions. Globalization has weakened unions, and we've seen the Republicans, you know, Scott Walker most notably, trying extremely hard to weaken unions, especially public sector unions. So we're at a point where, where worker power in the United States is, I, I argue, the weakest it's been in many, many decades. So uh, there's a sense now that something is really broken. I mean, something is really broken. And, and, you know, corporate profits have been at record levels and the stock market's at record levels, but we keep hearing that wages have been stagnant for year after year. They're going up a tiny bit now, but for the past few decades, they've been really stagnant for most workers. And people say, we have to fix this. And I think the reason we had the teacher strikes last year and the Marriott strike and the stop and shop strike and now the GM strike is they're saying, uh, we're not getting our fair share. All right, so this was a clip from Democracy Now. You can follow them at uh, democracynow.org. Finishing up, we have a positive news story, uh, or at least things moving in a good direction. So that's always great when that happens. Uh, very fortuitous, especially at the end of the program. And this is from an email I got from No Justice and No Pride. And you can find them at nojusticenopride.org. And their email says, we did it. We got a hearing. Thank you to Decrim Now. Well, thank you. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Thanks to you, Decrim Now will have its day in city council on October 17th. Since 2017, NJNP has been fighting alongside hundreds of activists and sex workers in D.C. in a cross-movement coalition with more than 50 community-based organizations, ranging from medical and service providers to labor and faith-based organizations, grassroots advocacy groups, and more, to decriminalize consensual sex work in Washington, D.C. While we still have... While we still aren't at that point, the announcement of a hearing is a huge victory. Thanks to all the petition signatures, emails, phone calls to members of the committee on the judiciary and public safety, canvas days, rallies, healing spaces, direct actions, including those that took place in June, helped make this a reality, and none of that work could have been done without you. Thank you. Now that we have a hearing date, we need to prepare and be sure that we are ready to provide facts, debunk myths, provide counter-narratives, and demystify the decriminalization of sex work. So there's a hearing alert, decriminalize sex work, invest in community, October 17th, 2019 at 10 a.m. in the Wilson Building, room 412, and this is in Washington, D.C., and they have an event that is an event invite that's on Facebook, and I will share this now on our Weekly Review webpage. And you can also just type in uh, pack the hearing, hashtag decrim now, and find more information about that. So um, that's some good news, and all for the decriminalization of sex work. Whew. All right, well, that was quite a show. Thanks so much for listening. Um, there are plenty of shows here at Mutiny Radio. If you're interested in being a DJ here, we've got slots available. Check out mutinyradio.fm to check out the schedule, as well as listen to many of the other great shows we have here at the space. If you are a regular listener of Common Thread Collective, that has now moved to the second and fourth Saturdays 
of the month here, 8 to 10. 8 to 10 p.m. here at the station. Also, if you'd like to donate at all, please do donate to the station. Donations is how we keep the doors open as well as paying our dues. And if folks would like to donate to this show in particular, uh, that would be really greatly appreciated. Oh my gosh, it'd be greatly appreciated. And a big thank you to the folks who already do donate. Our Patreon is set up at uh, patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. And that's patreon.com forward slash W-E-E-K-L-Y-R-E-V. And given the fact that there are dumbass war profiteers, warmongers in office now and prior, it's not a new thing, unfortunately. I mean, it's just unfortunate that they exist. And ugh, it's just gross. I heard a, a Dead Kennedy song a few months ago, and I was like, oh, wow, even though some of the, the names have changed, the attitudes are the same. And there was a line in it about going to war with or without Iran, which unfortunately some of these fuckers seem intent on doing. So... Just a reminder that uh, these battles have been waging for a long time. People in positions of power wanting to harm innocent people. So thought we'd share this song. Also, it's uh, perhaps a, a, quite an interesting break from uh, Dave Brubeck. And then also, good music's good music. So we'll be back next week, and we'll be having some more guests come in in the future. So very much looking forward to that. Thanks so much for tuning in, and have a great weekend, everyone. Tigers. We fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers. We're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear, too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers. California's motorcycle lawyer. Richard Harris, Harris Law Firm, LLP. 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834. Sam Francis
a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Mutinyradio.fm. Why not make a donation? Mutinyradio.fm. Streaming live the station. Mutinyradio.fm. District of the Mission. Mutinyradio.fm. Mutinyradio.fm. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco. MutinyRadio.fm. Hit the donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun! San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... The Let's Watch a Full-Length Movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... Uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch Nine months ago, a small, hand-wrought baton began a journey in John O'Groats, Scotland, packed tenderly into the crusty saddlebags of some adventuress next to her underwear and can opener. At present, the thing is several time zones away, but on its way to San Francisco next month, Friday, October 4th, we will be celebrating its arrival with a party at Moto Guild on Treasure Island. Join us in welcoming the baton and her bearers, the Women's Riders World Relay to Northern California, making its way back 
to Europe via everywhere from the furthest reaches of six continents, Europe, the Middle East, Asia, Oceania, and on its way across North and South America, igniting a global sisterhood of inspirational women to promote courage, adventure, unity, and passion for biking. There'll be music, food, entertainment, neat bikes to look at, stories to swap, art to ogle, purchase, and people to meet. Everyone is, of course, invited to bring the whole family. Admission is free, but bring a few bucks for food, bevies, a raffle, and cool stuff from vendors. On Friday, October 4th, San Francisco, Francisco will be celebrating the arrival of the Baton in California at Moto Guild on Treasure Island from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. Come celebrate your love of the motorcycle and the women who ride them. For more information on the party and other awesome motorcycle-related tidbits, join the Dames Don't Care Motorcycle Collective on Facebook. For lots of info on the relay, visit womenridersworldrelay.com. Hope to see you there at Moto Guild on Friday, October 4th. Forth with Dames Don't Care. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be like in front of an audience, like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's joke workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 